0: Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. This woman I've been following on social media and beyond. Uh, she's got an amazing podcast called Gaslit Nation. She also has several books, including New York Times bestseller, Hiding in Plain Sight, which we're going to talk mm-hmm. about in her latest book. They knew how a culture of conspiracy keeps America complacent. Let me welcome the great. Sarah Kinsior, hi, oh, hi, thank you so much for having me on. Hey, Tyler's giving you applause too. Tyler Merritt <laughs> is clapping for gotcha. you. All right, you know, um, Tyler, why why do you know Sarah?
1: Um, because authors, we we feel we feel what's up, and you know, you want to respect the game. Writing a book is an event, right? And a lot of people talk about doing it at some point. But when you write one and it hits that New York Times bestseller list, which is an event in itself, it puts you into a whole nother group. Her and I were just bonding about what it's like to see our books in Target or the airport. (laughs) Um, But I I love Sarah because you have a a very um, interesting perspective on how we look at uh, the news Um, with your podcast. You are not afraid to call out folks for what how you really feel. And nowadays, really calling people out. You know, I told a friend of mine, I was like, "I'm gonna be live with Karen. I could can get canceled, and that could be the end of the Tyler Merritt project." So, <laughs> so the <laughs> the fact the fact that you are not afraid to like keep it real is why I've been attracted to what you do. Oh, well,
0: thank you.
1: I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Why Why do people? You know what? And and it's not my fault that people get on this platform and get comfortable, but I feel like too many of us are. Are too, a little bit too comfortable, meaning we're too comfortable with the way things are. We don't tell the truth because we're worried about our bag and our check and thinking if we all just spoke the truth, they couldn't cancel everybody. They can't stop everybody's check, but somehow there's always gonna be some compliant ass person out there saying what people want them to hear, Van Jones, and then getting all of the money. And then we sit here and we wonder why, you know, why we haven't moved forward because somebody took a check. And left us all out in the lurch. That's what happens. Right. All right. Do You just triggered me just now with that, Tyler. But, um, obviously,
1: obviously. Yeah.
0: No, I just, I'm like, this COVID could be over. We don't have to be in this race war that we're in right now. The democracy that we are seeing crumble before our eyes doesn't have to be. If people would just tell the effing truth and stop mm-hmm. people from gaslighting and call it out when we see it, there wouldn't be any Fox. You know, we would gather up our family members and like, I'm canceling you can't come to Thanksgiving if you keep with this bull crap. And that's it. Kicking you out the family. But too too many people, Sarah, are benefiting from the current climate. Do you see that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's enormously frustrating. We're dealing with, I think, unparalleled corruption in so many different aspects of American life, and they're all interconnected with financial corruption, systemic racism, a mafia state culture, climate change, climate change and nihilism. You know, all this stuff is just, you know, facilitating a kind of climate where a very narrow segment of the population, a very wealthy elite is having total impunity that eventually becomes immunity. And we're all supposed to just sit here and pretend that we don't notice this happening and have baseless faith faith in broken institutions, in broken people leading the broken institutions. And yeah, I mean, it's driving me nuts. Like that's why the the second book was called Hiding in Plain Sight, because this stuff actually like isn't that hard. To figure out. It's like right there. We have a bunch of elite criminals who keep confessing to their crimes in public. And then everybody feigns, you know, amnesia and pretends they don't know what's going on. And then with they knew, it's about you know a lot of the same people. It's like they knew, they knew, we knew, everybody knew, and people pretend they don't know because they need to feign shock to avoid accountability. They want to avoid action. They want to avoid fixing the problems that that people documented. And I don't know. It's frustrating because what it does lead to, as y'all are just saying, is people refuse to even document the problems. They are become reluctant to call them out. They want to conform. They don't want to make waves. They're worried about money, careers, things like that at a time where democracy and our basic rights are in
0: peril. Hiding in plain sight, a history of the past 40 years of the decline of America. I've had several authors on talking about the decline of America. I think America... Uh, founded in genocide and enslavement and degradation of human life. um, I think it's hard for it to come back from that. That's the foundational edict of America. That's also part of the, you know, the lie that we're living in, the myth-making that we're living in, that that foundation is cracked from the beginning. You don't just fix it with a little cement. Maybe the Mm -hmm. Constitution needs to be rewritten. Maybe we need to reimagine what a future America should look like, where everybody's participating in this thing called democracy. What are your thoughts, both of you, on this, Sarah, first?
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think you need to start at the beginning. And that's why there's been all this outrage and attempts to censor the kind of historical projects or just books in general that give that history of America from 1619, you know, from enslaved people building this country, from Native American genocide and all of these other topics that were traditionally glossed over in schools. We had a kind of awakening, a selective awakening, an awakening among white people because I don't think that, Black people needed to have the history of slavery explained to them, but apparently a lot of white people did. And then an enormous backlash, which is what we're currently in now. And you know, there are direct lines between all of these historic events. You know, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. He was a culmination. He was a culmination of the kind of Reagan-era policies I write about in hiding in plain sight. But Reagan himself, of course, came out of a much larger tradition and purposely tried to reinvigorate it. You know, from the moment he he launched his campaign, it was based on white supremacy. It was based on this, you know, facile view of trickle-down economics that was really a war on the poor instead of a war on poverty. You know, all of these things are a continuum. And now we're in this environment, I think people are, are understandably very traumatized by COVID. They're traumatized by the last two years. But what that's done to people, I think, is make them um, protective in a way that's really nefarious, where they want to just hold on to what's theirs. They feel like there's not enough to go around. Everyone feels like they're on shaking ground. They're looking for scapegoats. They're looking to, to demonize people who are suffering. Um, and all of that concerns me a great deal.
1: I want to say, I, I, think in the midst of all of this, um, and I, I've said this a million times that there is a way to lean into hope. And, um, oftentimes myself as a Black man in America, I do not have the privilege not to have hope. Um, Sometimes hope is the only thing that I can hold on to. And in the midst of all the stuff that we walk through, and Sarah, I love how you just put the entirety of that together. um, I do think that I'm learning right now, especially with having a book out that continues to be read by lots of people, the power of our individual stories really matter. People ask me all the time, hey, what's, what's something I can do in social justice immediately? And I'll say the first thing that you can do is begin to believe Black people when they tell you their stories. Believe Black people when they tell you something and know that it's true. Um, I think the same way we can we can walk that same line in America, by believing people's stories based on the actual things that they live. Not their perceived idea of something or what they think they might know, but what is your current situation right now? Are you going to talk about how much you support Trump and this out of the other while you're in, and I'm not stereotyping anybody, but you're in Walmart trying to figure out, do I get the good oranges or the bad oranges, right? Like, let's really talk about what your current life is like. And if I listen to your story and you listen to mine, we can begin to to walk through some of this effed upness that we're all a part of. So I'm aware that my take on it is very like on the ground literal, but um, this is what I'm seeing right now. And it's all based out on um, what you said, Sarah. Like I, I, I couldn't agree with you more.
2: Yeah. I think one of the things that's really irritated me over the last few years is this line that we're always hearing from pundits and politicians, which is, nobody saw this coming, meaning nobody mm. saw Trump coming, no one saw the demise of democracy coming. Whereas in reality, the question to ask is, who are you calling no one? Who do you consider no mm. one? Because people sometimes point to me and they'll think that I'm unique in having seen this coming. And I think I may be unique among white authors of the national platform and that I was calling this out very early. I. Every marginalized group that was persecuted and targeted by Trump and by this broader band of racists and kleptocrats and other corrupt individuals saw this coming. Black Americans saw this coming. (laughs) Latino Americans, Native Americans, immigrants, Muslims, Jewish people, everybody who was targeted saw this coming and said, take this seriously, please. Like This is a serious thing. There is no American exceptionalism. Nothing is guaranteed. And then they just continue to feign shock. And at this point, it's really, it's malicious. Um, And, you know, so I'm standing with nobody. I count myself proudly among nobody. Nobody also includes all the scholars of authoritarianism who saw this coming in other places. We're like, wow, this looks very familiar here, this uh, pathway to autocracy. So I don't know. That's the question that we need to ask is who's considered nobody in this country and why? We already know.
0: uh
1: Believe us.
0: You already know. Sarah Kinziar is here. Tyler Merritt. His book is called I Take My Coffee Black. Her book, which is coming out, is called They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. So I have a couple of questions I always ask people who identify as white. Why do you do that? It's right a made up con- yeah, white. yeah, it's a made up construct. Right. And I feel it's like as, made long, as long as we attach ourselves to a power structure that by its very nature was designed to keep people in, in bondage, to keep people at a, in a lower class, then we are contributing to the very thing that we want to dismantle. So I'm committed to uh, having everyone examine, you know, what it means to be white in America. Most people can't even define it. So uh, have, you, no, you sat, with, have you sat with it, Sarah?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a good question. I think, you know, to deny whiteness, to feign some sort of color blindness, I think is destructive no, because then no, you're denying I, the things that come with it. But to have it as a core function of identity but what is something is it? more important than something else. Uh,
0: what's white culture? Well, white, what changes. Is wh- white, white changes. White so, changes with history. So how is that possible if it's an actual thing, right? I mean. Because it's a, it's a cast of privilege.
2: Like when my family, which is originally from Poland, came here, we were not... White. We we're in some weird ambiguous zone, you know, between black immigrant. And white. What we immigrant. Yeah, immigrant yeah. and Slavic and Eastern European and, and Catholic and weird. What happened was it's very interesting. There's actually a story of this, I think it was in um it was in Detroit irish people in an uh, irish americans in an attempt to convince the poles that they were white because this whole sort of construct was a little bit foreign to poles who thought about you know other ethnic groups there were lots of you know prejudices bigotry but not in terms of black and white it's an american thing they put blackface on and then terrorized polish neighborhoods so that polish people could be taught to fear Black people and to think of them as the enemy. And it kind of worked and kind of didn't, but I have to say eventually it did. A lot of Polish people got on board the white train and decided it is safer, it is better, you get better jobs, you get to live in a better neighborhood. They wanted those advantages. They didn't want to be accountable for what they were taking or for what other people were being denied. And so when white people go on about you need to respect your ancestors, I always think of in terms of like, yeah, I'd like to respect my ancestors that they came here and other white people treated them like garbage. So it's therefore my obligation to not treat other people like garbage, to treat people who are in a worse place off than me. It's my obligation to, to change that, to make that better and to raise my children right so that they don't do that. They don't perpetuate the system. Like it's, it's about action more than sort of like stewing with my identity. It's about how you treat people. I think that's the best judgment of a person's character is just how do they treat other people? You know, do, like, are they... Treating people with an open mind, hearing them out and trying to actually make change, even if it puts their own security at risk at some points.
1: White um, people listen up close. You come on the Karen Hunter show. she' about to call you out and be like, why are you white, though? They, they already know. <laughs> they
0: already know. And if they don't, they end up stumbling. Sarah actually gave the best answer. Everyone's like, it's homina, homina, homina. You know, even the most uh, erudite scholars come on with their, you know, anti-racist books or whatever, get flustered when asked that because most Americans have never asked themselves what it means, but they embrace it like it's lifeblood and they will fight you. This is what we're fighting for right now. The preservation of whiteness. We're losing our numbers. They're going to replace us. But who's they? Who are you? And, you know, if you can, if Italians were lumped in with Jews and blacks and dogs and then they weren't if the Irish were originally lumped in until they were like hey they're banning with the enslaved people uh let's break this up even though they don't have any property any rights either but let's make them make them better so that they can stop this nonsense of coming together to fight the power structure the 1%, it's still the same. It's still the same mm-hmm. today. So everybody that weds themselves to this thing called whiteness is part of the problem, in my opinion. And I'm here to, to have, that conversa- have that conversation, not just have a conversation, dismantle it, Let's dismantle it. Um, so who's the they in your book? Sarah Sarah or is here. She also has a podcast, Gaslit Nation. Uh, Sarah, you can follow her at Sarah, K-E-N-D-Z as in zebra, I-O-R on the Twitters. They knew. Who's they? And what did they know? It's
2: it's a lot of you. Know, it's not like one they it's not like one, you know, evil cabal simultaneously, you know, operating and organizing all world events. It, it's more the they of, you know, people knew about corruption. They knew about climate change. They knew about coup plots. They knew about covid. They knew about, you know, racist discrimination. It's about everybody who is in a position of power and feigned ignorance in order to avoid uh, tackling the problem. And also, uh, you know, instead of doing that, would label anybody who did bring up any of these serious structural issues that often le- led to mass death as conspiracy theorists, as alarmists, as hysterical, you know, which is something like I get called all those things a lot. So I haven't been on the receiving end of this one. Wait, wait didn't um, they just
0: call <laughs> women hysterical and institutionalize them when they had opinions oh, yeah. in the, like the yeah, 1920s I mean, it and comes 30s? From- like
2: uterus and hysteria have the same root word in Greek. Like it's it's an incredibly misogynist term. Sometimes I see it applied to men, but it's mostly if you say something that's true, Uh, And that makes people uncomfortable and that often involves a critique of powerful people or even just a statement of these powerful people got together, had a plot and carried out this grotesque action. People will think it's over the top and you Mm. see it with things modern, uh, you know, conspiracies like the Jeffrey Epstein case. But I think one, you know, maybe relevant for your listeners is the Tulsa uh, 1921 Black Wall Street Massacre, which when I would bring that up to people before it was more widely popularized through TV shows and also through you know important historical work that's gotten more limelight, folks would think I was making this up. They would say if that really happened, like I would have heard about it. It would have been taught to me in school because that's obviously important. And so their instinct is to reject It's to say that couldn't possibly be true because I would know. And then the horror that that comes to people when they realize that all these things were true and they were taking place right under your nose and officials knew and people in power could have stopped them knew and they kept silent. Like this idea that groups of powerful people cannot keep a secret is a myth. They will go to great lengths to keep those secrets. They're going great lengths right now, trying to rewrite history books, trying to ban accurate history from schools. They will do that. And so it's important to call it out in real time and document not just what we know, but what we know they don't want us to know.
0: 866-801-8255 is the number. Sarah, Is here best-selling author, of course, co-host of Gaslit Nation, author of many books, including uh, New York Times bestseller, uh, soon to be also Hiding in Plain Sight, and then They Knew. So you can pre-order that. We'll tweet out a link. Um, Hiding in Plain Sight is a history of the past forty years of American decline. How bad is it right now? Um, And do you have hope that uh, Humpty Dumpty can be put back together? In my opinion, maybe should just not. We shouldn't even try let's start something new pouring a clean a good decent foundation
2: yeah i think there's no way out but through which is you know you, you may have read like Stephen King's The Stand. There's a section about that, about how nobody really knows how to, you know, trace this lone, lonely and dark path of hell. He says something that sounds very dire. But then he says, you know, you either come through it or you don't. And I actually find that inspiring because when I think of hope, I think of resilience and I think of defiance mm-hmm. and I think of perseverance more than just wishes or dreaming or something like from the heart. It's about your action and your refusal to give up, like an insistence on I'm going to keep going, even if I'm going out of spite. but. You know, hopefully I'm going out of love and compassion and, and something more noble, but you know, that's also a motivator. Um, I think things are very dire just because there are so many crises and they're interconnected and some are literally existential, something like dealing with the uh, effects of climate change with extreme um, wealth hoarding, opportunity hoarding. It, it's, it's a really tough time. And I feel for our young people in particular who are kind of looking into the future and seeing dire things, and I hope they know older folks are standing up for them. Um, you know, I don't think of things though, like in terms of like hope or hopelessness, but just on like, what do we need to do? And part of what we need to do is be honest about the severity of the crises, because if we know what we're fighting, if we're real about that, then we have a much better chance of succeeding.
1: Sarah, do you, um, can I ask, what do you hope that, And if you could almost put it like into a sentence or two, that your readers are going to get from They Knew. I know when I sit down to write a book, I, I try to think about when someone closes that book, what, what is it that I want them to, to, to stay with, to land on? And what's, what's your hope that those that pick up They Knew, which all these folks that are listening are going to, because you're brilliant, we love you. Um, tell us, what do you, what do you want us to take?
2: I hope it makes people more comfortable asking uncomfortable questions in a public forum because there's been so much stigma. There's been so many attacks on people for, for simply just asking questions. You know, They're called a tinfoil hat or conspiracy theorist or whatever, and that's meant to shut down critical inquiry on touchy subjects, especially in American history. And so I'm trying to remove that stigma. I'm trying to say, you know, obviously, if you go in with malevolent intent, if you go in spreading propaganda, like somebody like Alex Jones, like people like that do, that's a different kind of thing. If you're simply trying to get to the bottom of root causes, of corruption in American society, of state crimes in American society. I think that's a good thing. I actually think that's part of civic obligation. So I'd like to remove the stigma from that. Like when I was a teenager in the nineties, I didn't feel like there was so much stigma to just asking questions. It was all over the place. It was in our pop culture. It was like on the X-Files, it was in, you know, movies like JFK for better or for worse. It was just part of our lives. Then after 9-11, I think things really changed where to challenge these institutional bodies became viewed as unpatriotic. And I think it is an act of patriotism. It's an act of patriotism in the way James Baldwin wrote about patriotism, you know, where you love America so much, you feel obligated to criticize it relentlessly. And I think that that's, that's a positive thing to do. It's good for everybody.
1: Oh, you're just trying to come on Black shows and drop <laughs> X-Files and James Baldwin. What? What Wait, are no. We see you, girl. We see you
0: stop it stop it she's just she does this everywhere um and this is not a black show 30% of our listeners uh happen to be melanemic 30% are melanemic uh you know I'm
1: playing you know you know know I'm playing I I will um, happily
2: I will do a spin-off that is just x-files and James Baldwin anytime
1: I love that (laughs) all right
0: Sarah Sarah Kinzour is here who uh how did you get radicalized
2: um you know i'm not sure i have been i'd like there's some quote i'm I'm a botch it i think it's from orwell where it's like to tell the truth you know in a sort of environment where nobody wants to hear it it makes you like a radical by default that is not the quote i just butchered it but you get the idea like i i become viewed that way just by simply stating the facts when i'm surrounding by surrounded by a choir of liars you know you were
0: raised in connecticut uh, you went to same, similar schools that we did. I'm sure all of us where we were miseducated, where you were not informed of things. Was there one seminal book? Was there one person, a teacher or somebody where you went down a rabbit hole and was like, everything I've been taught is a lie. Okay, let me explore, explore, explore. Wait a minute. Now I have to tell the truth. Was there that moment for you?
2: I don't think there was that moment. I mean, I was kind of like, you know, born with a bad attitude. Like I, I never was really one to just kind of accept authority. I was, you know, kind of a, troublemaker, like a good student, but also a troublemaker. And I think with the Internet, with suddenly being able to access all this information that I didn't have access to beforehand, you know, in the 2000s and afterwards, at least in the initial period, you know, that helped expand my mind. Every now and again, a book would come out that would expand my mind, like The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabella Wilkerson. Like that blew my mind, not just for the content, but for the fact that I was never taught in school. And at that point I was completing a Ph.D. And so you think, wow. how do I get to this level? How do I live hmm. in St. Louis? how do i you know live in a black community and not know all of these details and so once you're aware of how much you don't know um, then you are, you know, one more curious about the world, but also more humbled. You know, you, you look at everything and you think, well, what parts of the story have been left out? Why were they left out? Who left them out? That kind of thing. And that, and I also, you know, I spent the rest of my life studying authoritarian states. I was studying Uzbekistan, uh, you know, for over a decade before oh. I had to switch to the U.S. because it became so similar. And uh, unfortunately, and Uzbekistan is a place where, you know, you kind of got to give up your assumptions of what stands in for, you know, normal governance and and normal rule of law, like there is no such thing it's, it's constant deception, uh, lies, you really have to wade through a lot of propaganda to gain basic understanding. And I started applying those same sort of, you know, viewpoints and way of looking at the world to the United States, and found out a lot of interesting things. So mm. not great things, but interesting oh, things.
0: Of that, I, I read that you're fluent in Russian,
2: I'm not fluent. I think someone wrote that on Wikipedia. I did study it, but it was mostly... it was for reading because when you study a former Soviet uh, country, you know, all the, the literature from that period is in Russian. So I can read Russian decently. I speak it very, very poorly, especially, you know, now that Google Translate has been uh, created and kind of, you know, broke up the whole uh, fluency aspiration game.
1: Well, I'm, I'm fluent in Russian, too. And we're about to have a conversation. But since you're not actually fluent, it's fine. Yeah, Hilarious.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tyler, <laughs> Tyler Barrett is here. He is... I think he is fluent in Russia. I think he speaks a lot of languages. Uh, Sarah Kinzior, uh, as we watch this conflict play out between Russia and Ukraine, I know there's a lot more to it. You have a vast faction of Americans who side with Russians, with the Russians because of their whiteness. You have some... Americans who side with the Russians because they look at Ukraine as anti-black because of what happened with the people trying to escape the war. Uh, There's a lot of interesting views. What is it that you absolutely know about this conflict and how will it impact those of us who live in America?
2: Well, this conflict was instigated by the Kremlin. I mean, the first thing to you know is, you know, this conflict has been brewing for centuries and Putin has declared himself a dictator and is trying to emulate the, you know, dictators and czars of Russia's past. So he invaded Ukraine. And I think what a lot of Americans and vice miss is he invaded Ukraine in 2014 and then took Crimea and then threatened to invade them for eight years. And I know there's very understandable frustration with like, why are the Ukrainians getting so much attention, money, aid, et cetera, from the American government when the American government has abandoned a great deal of its own people? And I think that that's a legitimate complaint. But the thing is, they also abandoned Ukraine for the first eight years of this. And modern Georgia. Conflict. And,
0: Georgia and, and Georgia. And Crimea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They've abandoned almost all the victims of Putin's Russia, including the United States, because, you know, Russia hacked us multiple <laughs> times. They hacked like almost every agency during Obama's second term. You know, they threatened us and they had an ally in Trump, who was completely fine with this and on board and functioning as a Kremlin asset, which should be considered an enormously big deal, somehow has been memory holed by the current administration and by, you know, our quote unquote intelligence agencies, which led me to believe that they are fine with it. And, you know, one of the things I emphasize and hiding in plain sight in my other works is that this is not quite a government thing. This is a mafia thing. This is where the mafia and the government has merged. This this group of oligarchs and plutocrats and real organized crime and state government officials. They are working in tandem for their own aims, um, completely uh, uninterested in the will of the people anywhere. They don't care what Americans want. They don't care what Ukrainians want. They don't care what Russians want. Like we're all you know, there's a a Ukraine Ukrainian saying, you know, the people are the shit that the oligarchs grow their money in. And that's basically what's been happening, you know, for the last couple of of decades. And so I hope folks, you know, feel empathy and solidarity with the victims of Putin's war with the Ukrainians, you know, who are struggling to survive and understand that this is a pretty it's a lopsided conflict, like they are being invaded and it's going on and on and they are trying to drag it out.
1: See, you asked me, Karen, from the beginning why I feel Sarah, because she wakes up every day and chooses violence. She <laughs> is telling it like it is; doesn't even care. Go, you tell him, girl, tell yes,
0: six, six, him. or what eight two five five. You know, um, Tyler and Sarah, I am trying to be impeccable with my word um four agreements and part of that also is pristine with language and i think we have allowed ourselves to like oh i love you to death please don't do that love me to life i need <laughs> life loving affirming life choosing violence no she chose truth no we're mm-hmm. they're not slaves that something mm-hmm. happened to them they were human beings something had like we have to in every step of the way eliminate the n-word from our Everybody, everybody, no n word. I don't care how it makes you feel at home and in comfort with one another to be able to be in community around that word, it is rooted in destruction. And let's not do that, you know. And I'm, I I feel like I sometimes I'm going too far for the place that we're in because people are like, just lighten up. But I feel Mm. like we've let too many things go. So, you know, Sarah's a Virgo, which so I I know she understands this, you know, there's a, there's a, a rigidness around justice with with virgos most virgos are, they they have a due north and they're not moving from it and i'm a tourist and people accuse us of being uh rigid in the same way we're not we, you just need to come with a whole lot of facts for us to change but there there should be a, a, a zero tolerance somewhere i think where we 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 don't have that as a nation most of us
2: yeah i mean i think precision and language like you were saying like you know, people always get heated up about this. They think precision in language means cancel culture or self-censorship or something like that. Instead of just trying to express yourself in the best way possible, you know, which is hard to do on the spot, you know, which is often why I prefer writing. But it's something to aspire to. It's a way of asserting your own control over this situation by defining it in your own terms, and your own experience, by not just reciting memes or letting an algorithm guide you. You know, that's mm. another takeaway. You asked before about takeaways ways from they knew that's something else they really want people to do is to like regain that sense of self that is trying to be drilled out of us in so many ways by technocracies by social media there is such an impetus to conform and sometimes it doesn't even come from human beings it just comes from this sort of reward system of you know likes or retweets like none of that stuff matters it really doesn't matter like human connection is what matters self-expression is what matters being comfortable with how you feel your own moral integrity your own moral core. That matters. And I think that that reflects what you were just saying, Karen, about, you know, choosing carefully what kind of words we use, how we express ourselves, so that we live up to those values.
0: Yeah, I'm going to stay on that. All right. We were also talking in the chat, Tyler and I, because uh, I was talking about the bear with Hulu, and he said he just finished watching it. And did, you, you didn't like it or you liked
1: it? Are you kidding? I loved it okay, so much. Listen, <laughs> Sarah, I'm sorry. I'm about to go hard on the bear for Girl. a second. Have you watched it yet? No, I don't even know what it is. See, I feel like I'm more about to leave you out. I'm about to go hard just for like two minutes. All right, first so. of all, I'll
0: tell her what it is so that she don't she okay. doesn't feel left out.
1: So the show it's it's basically a show about cooking, but they use the conduit of cooking to tell the story about people. Is what hmm. they really do, and so it's a show based. Um, the storyline is based in in Chicago. And you have this chef who is like one of the best chefs in the world who has to come home and like kind of save his family sandwich shop. And I was not ready. I was ill prepared, Karen. I wasn't ready. And I don't know. And I'm a film guy. I'm an actor, obviously. Episode seven, Karen. I don't know if you remember this episode, but it's 20 minutes and it's one shot. Do you remember that? Was that when the young lady was which what what was that? When the black
0: girl she gets on a train, she comes and she has her little notepad and she's,
1: you know. Nope, that- that's the episode, that's the episode where <laughs> they install the new equipment for the pre-art, for the, and that, and, okay. and do, I don't want to give too much right, away. Right, don't give away, yes. Go back and watch that episode, carrying. It's 20 minutes and it's one shot. Okay, I'm going to check ju- it out. It's just them yes. going through, it is, it's. I I text uh, my my boy, Nick Walker, and we have this group chat. I text him and I said, I think that The Bear is one of the most perfect shows I've seen on television in the past few years. So there you go. Hmm.
0: Now, I watched Shameless. So the star of this played Lip in Shameless, one of the brothers who really smart. That was a smart family, but they were dysfunctional as F. He's still in a dysfunctional family. Uh the Punisher is his brother. I'm not gonna give away anything. Uh but yeah, the acting. That young black girl who I've never seen before. What? Yeah, so it was that she okay. came through, man. She came
1: how right. many. Like, what are we talking about? Right. No,
0: I need TV
2: recommendations. This is actually very this is very useful. And, and, and the there's only the episodes in. are only like
1: thirty minutes, and there's like only eight episodes. So it's not gonna keep you watching for like twelve days. Okay. I went through it in about twenty four hours. And That's it's nice. It's and what happened, Karen? I'll tell you what happened. Is I started at three o'clock in the morning, like a fool, like oh, let me just put this on right quick. And thre- of course, four episodes later, it's five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm up here saying my whole language changed, Karen. Do you realize I was? I told a friend of mine who worked in the in the um service industry. I was talking to her last night, and she was like, "Have you seen um the bear?" And I was like, heard, corner." I was using all these <laughs> words
0: that. <and> I- <laughs> Uh, all right well so what are you what what do you watch i know you have uh sarah you have children a husband you got mm-hmm. you know all these books you're writing and you know you have to promote those and write and do your podcast and do you have do you do you watch any television i watch a lot of television I mean, thank God, you know?
2: Um, yeah. The best thing I've seen recently is Severance on Apple Plus in terms of like new shows. I love like horror. I love sci-fi. I'm okay. still stuck in my X-Files phase. I'm also watching with my son because he's 11 Gravity Falls, which is like oh, X-Files is slash Twin Peaks <laughs> for beautiful. children. Yes. I'm really into it. I was watching it to kind of, you know, placate him a little bit. I have some mommy son time, but now I'm into it. Now I'm like oh, into the mystery. And Gravity, Falls into Gravity Falls is good. It's the, good. It's really
0: good. The severance it was it got too weird when they went uh, when I realized what was going on I was like I I I can't I'm living in America right now there's too much ta- it was too top ta- it was too str- too oh, yeah. much
2: it's, it's taxing I, on the yeah, line yeah, yeah and
0: I just <laughs> I just need to be like mindless like loot right now is my jam right. on Apple TV and for all mankind loving yes, that. I
2: haven't watched that. Don't tell me third season yet. I'm waiting. Wait oh waiting God. until it's done so I can binge it. I love that show.
0: I, I binged that the way Tyler binged uh, The yes. Bear. It's
2: so
1: good. I'm so caught up I'm now. About to, I'm about to be real basic right now. Okay. I was not <laughs> hip. I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, when I get to the punchline of this, y'all are going to be like, that's pretty basic. But I was not hip to Stranger Things. Like, everybody was watching Stranger Things, and I was like, Man, I'll get to it. And then I finally got to it again, and I... It wasn't bad. That's why I think I can speak Russian if I'm keeping it one hundred. That's the only reason why. <laughs> You're <laughs> like Murray. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I don't. I, that's,
2: um, I, I love Stranger Things, and of course, my, you know, I have two kids, and we—they've been watching Stranger Things their whole lives, and we all watch it as a family. We put ice cream on Eggo's, and we eat it in celebration, and you know, it's a good.
0: Time. Oh wow! Yo, <laughs> it's delicious. I,
2: I, I have rediscovered my love of Eggos. It's been like a you know decades long lull. I'm back on track. So thank you for Stranger things but yeah that's a good
0: one come on through 11 well I love it because it's the <laughs> 80s and that was the glory mm-hmm. years minus driving through New York we were talking about that off mic too New York right now is disgusting Um, I don't know if it's Eric Adams' fault but I'm gonna blame de Blasio because I think it started the disgustingness mm. that started under him because I remember several snowstorms in the heart of the most you know high real estate because I teach at Hunter College so you're talking about the Upper East Side you don't let trash stay in snow like on the upper east sure. side. That's when you that's when you know a city's declining when the highest real estate in the city has trash in the snow for like several days and it's disgusting and it's black i was like the city's declining this was before covid so i'm gonna blame de blasio but it is disgusting yesterday we were in the city as i was talking about top of the show and it feels like the warriors uh come out and play it feels like the 80s where the graffiti was on the only saving grace is that the trains are designed now that you can't put the graffiti on it but i feel like if they could put it on there it would be there The Squeegee Men in the back I had the evil eye one. I was like, "Don't if you come over with this dirty water, I will get out this car and whip your ass. And I, that's all that I said in my eyes. I didn't say it. But if you come over here with that dirty water, and he saw me, we locked eyes, and I was like, don't try it. And he went on to the next car. But That's it's,
1: some New York stuff right there where you look yeah, at the squeegee man like, nah.
0: Don't even, don't you bring that on. dirty water over here. And I, now I'm like paranoid that I got, it's probably seeping in to the cracks or something. Like, don't do it. Nope.
1: I'm going to be there this weekend. Where exactly where you're talking about. And now I'm concerned that I need to wear like some boots or something no, to walk you off the track. You,
0: you need boots and some spray for your boots. And you got to double up on the mask. Even though a lot of the unhoused have masks, but they're wearing them like chin straps. Mm. I'm appreciating the Squeegee Man had on a mask, but it looked like it was like he had that mask since the beginning of COVID.
1: Like it, <laughs> it's old. I, I mean, but where do you get new
0: masks? Horrible do they give vision. them out. I'm sorry. That's a
1: horrible visual for you to say. I saw a squeegee man with a two-year-old mask around his chin. He
0: did. It was. It was bad. But where do you get a mask if you're unhoused, and it costs money? Like we're we're not doing the best job here, people. All right. What's your biggest fear, Sarah you Are you raising children in this world?
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess my fears are mostly for. My children. I mean, I want to go into like absolute worst case immediate things. I'm afraid for their future. I'm afraid in general, you know, for the future of this generation. I kind of feel like, you know, I've had my time, let what happens happen. But, you know, I look at the refusal to deal with a lot of these problems head on, problems that have been getting worse my entire life, you know, like corruption, like uh, Mm. income inequality, opportunity hoarding by a narrow part of the American elite uh, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And this utter refusal to deal with them and the complicity of the political actors that are supposed to be fighting for these things, you know, the Democratic Party and so forth. You know, like I feel like I was born into a crime spree. Like I I grew up, I'm a Reagan baby, too. You know, I grew up in the 1980s and it's just been one long contention. Continuous crime spree that people will not, you know, recognize as a crime spree. Like the trickle down economics is trickle down corruption, and it just fell and fell and fell until people couldn't see it. For what it was anymore, and now we're living in that. And I actually think the younger generation see everything more clearly. I mean, I think that's that tends to be true of younger people, period. And then as, as we get older, we see things less clearly. But this this generation in particular, um, you know, they don't have time for nonsense or uh, prevarication or what have you. They call it like it is, and I appreciate that. But I also don't I, I don't want the burden to be on them to fix all this stuff. Sometimes I hear all that, like, oh, the young people look look at them and their clarity. Of mine and their bravery, they'll save us all. It's like that's not their job. Like you know, I'm a mom. Like I feel like it's my job to take care of my kids, and I know other parents feel the same. We don't want our children to have to rescue us. That's kind of a nightmarish uh, situation, you know.
0: I've been saying that this generation is going to save us. <laughs> I've been saying because I teach, I teach them, and they they are getting increasingly smarter, increasingly more active. However, they don't vote. So, 2020, 2016, half of the eligible voters between the ages of 18 and 29 actually cast a ballot. That is an increase, but it's not enough because if they if they voted 70 percent or 65 percent, it would be a game changer, I believe. And they have more at stake. So it, sh- I mean, it shouldn't be on them to save us. But this is the world they're going to inherit, and I think they are active. These are the people that are out in the streets doing all of the, you know, activating. But the voting, do you think that that's important, Sarah?
2: I think it is important. I also understand the reluctance at times because it's incredibly frustrating when people run on a political platform and then pass almost none of it and then berate you. I'm not saying you do this, but I've seen other, you know, Democratic officials, they berate people. They're like, this is your fault. You know, you didn't vote in 2016. You didn't do this or that. To someone who's like, you know, 22 years old and has, you know, is dealing with a pandemic and, you know, inflation and all of these terrible crises and looking into a bleak future. I mean, I, I think that if you're trying to get young people vote, the best thing to do is acknowledge the suffering, acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the failures within parties to live up to their promises, and then go from there. Because the thing with voting is like, you know, Things might not change if you vote. That sometimes happens. That certainly happens to me in Missouri where the Republicans just throw out my vote. Like they literally say, you know, you voted for this ballot initiative. You did this and that. It doesn't matter. We don't care. But nothing will change if you don't vote. That's like a guaranteed thing. So you might as well use your voice, use your opportunity, use that right because they are trying to take it away. And, you know, I wish more attention were paid to voter suppression. I felt this way since the partial repeal of the VRA and obviously beforehand when they're, you know, Gearing up to that, but um, the reluctance to deal with that with these repressive new state laws—you know, everything uh, from ID laws to, to states like Georgia or Texas that would just flat out say our state legislature can toss your votes, you know, making it irrelevant that needs to be dealt with by our officials. Like it's young folks and everybody's job to show up and just cast their vote, but to put the burden of fixing structural problems that we just simply don't have power over on us. It's its a lot, it's a lot to ask of people. So I wish officials would step up too. I
1: right, think it's right. really important too, though, that um, kids nowadays, I say kids nowadays, I have a feeling like we're probably around the same age, Sarah, from some of the stuff you talk about, but, um, Kids, man, they want to know that what any what they, what they do matters. It doesn't matter what what it is they're doing. They want to know that whatever it is they are doing matters. That's the reason why they don't want to work at McDonald's because they're going. What does this actually have to do with the forward movement of anything? And I think it 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 we have to. Uh, uh, some of us old, I'm, I consider myself an old head now, um, <laughs> have to let these kids know that voting in their local elections if they wanna to start to feel a little bit of an actual change of what your vote can do, instead of just saying, you need to vote out Trump. You know, we need to get down and go, we maybe need to vote out the guy that's down the street. And so you can begin to see the impact of your singular vote. Um, and as they continue to grow and understand things like redlining and all of the history that is the jacked up voter suppression that we live in, Finding the little glimpses of hope where we can actually have some movement, I think is what's really going to matter in the big, big picture when we're talking to youth. Like I said, and people hate me for this. I can't give up hope, man. I just can't. And I know I sound all Barack Obama-y when I talk about hope. I know I do. I know I do. But I'm at a point in my life right now where I want your kids, man. I I want your kids, Sarah. I don't know how old they are, but I, I want them to... I want to be 80 years old and look at your kids and be able to say to them, remember, I used to talk about hope back in the day. Mm-hmm. Now you got it. You know?
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's what we all want. I think that's what we all dream of. What I get frustrated with, not with the way that you're framing hope is when sometimes other folks frame hope as more of just like a wish, like, oh, I hope Merrick Garland indicts Trump, you know, something like that, where I'm like, no, you need to demand and you need to critique and you need yes. to not bow down to authority. Yeah. But the kind of hope you're expressing yeah. is rooted in compassion and a desire for a better future. And I think we, that's a good thing.
0: We have less than a minute. Um, I want to get Carl in Missouri who has been uh, wants to talk quickly. Carl, hey, welcome quickly hey, karen,
1: i'm glad to actually hey karen how you doing i'm glad to actually speak with you guys on the show sarah i want to say i listen to you every thursday when your podcast comes out and i love it you just tell the truth and you're just you express yourself al- along with molly i believe so well
2: oh thank you thank you very much
0: yeah i just want you to get your love and thank problem. you carl appreciate <laughs> it appreciate it uh 17.7 million people watch the january 6 hearings that is uh very good, very good. Um, it's only second to the 20 million that saw the first hearing, the uh, first committee primetime hearing June 9th. Um, quickly optimistic that Trump is going to get arrested? Sarah? No, No, I mean, he
2: needs, he should be, because right. I think he's an existential threat to American life, but I don't you have don't faith so in this system. I'm just going to keep right. demanding he be indicted for all the crimes that he committed in plain sight.
0: Tyler feels, Tyler's feeling the same way. All right, me, me too. So we are in agreement Now we got to get busy. Thank you for being here. Will you come back? I hope so. Yes. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on SiriusXM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the SiriusXM app.